Stark. I'm uh, joined here with uh, Jeffrey uh, Mishlov. He is the host of uh, New Thinking Aloud and originally hosted uh, Thinking Aloud on uh, PBS. Uh, Jeffrey, uh, great talking to you. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. And I'm also joined here with my uh, co-host, uh, Pilliter. Hey, Robert. Hey, Mishlov. I really like uh, Thinking Aloud. I'm quite a fan of the show. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, Jeffrey, you have a PhD in uh, parapsychology. It's fairly uncommon uh, in the academic world. Can you talk about how you got interested in parapsychology and the psychology department that you were in? Oh, yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. Uh, I got an interdisciplinary individual doctoral diploma in parapsychology from the University of California at Berkeley in 1980. And to this day, 36 years later, to my understanding, and I'm pretty well connected in the world of parapsychology, no other doctoral diploma has been issued by an accredited university that says parapsychology. It's not only rare, I have the only one ever awarded in the world, which is kind of sad for me because I was very hopeful that the field would have progressed more and that universities all over the world would be offering degrees in parapsychology. But I guess I just have to be patient, and that's one of the reasons I put together the New Thinking Aloud video channel on YouTube, is to create a legacy of interviews that I'm conducting with many leading figures in parapsychology and related fields. I got involved in the field originally, frankly, as a skeptic, back when I was an undergraduate in psychology at the University of Wisconsin, I decided to write a senior honors thesis on the topic of the psychology of religious mysticism. And I was pretty convinced that people who claimed to see ghosts and spirits and auras and were having psychic events were uh, experiencing some sort of psychopathology. And that's what I expected my thesis would be about. But the more I researched it, the more I realized that actually uh, people who were having mystical experiences uh, were highly creative, very uh, successful people professionally, and, and that the mystical experience was, in fact, a form of higher consciousness. And after I wrote that uh, senior honors thesis, I discovered I, I was having uh, these experiences myself, and that led me to uh, pursue a, a um, doctoral study in the field. And parapsychology kind of leads to a lot of the scientific uh, debates about sort of the spiritual world versus a science. One example is like a one subset of parapsychology is like near-death experiences. 
I know of a lot of the scientists have tried to debunk them and said when these people have, I mean, I've seen a lot of the stories of people who have died and come back on YouTube, but scientists have uh, tried to say that a certain part of their brain uh, was still being stimulated when that happened. Have you interviewed any guests who have had near-death experiences? Uh, yes, I've interviewed many people on, on that topic. You know, I began doing uh, radio interviews in 1972. That's one of the things that led me to pursue my own doctoral degree. And over the last, gee, 40 years or so, I'm sure I've interviewed uh, over a thousand people, many of them. Uh, having to do with the near-death experience, including Raymond Moody, the uh, doctor who wrote the famous book, uh, uh, Life After Life, about uh, near death. And uh, these are very sincere people. Um, now, I suppose the uh, skeptics uh, may be correct. It might be theoretically possible that these experiences are nothing more than the product of the human brain under uh, in a state of crisis. Uh, but the near-death experience is only one line of evidence that po points to the question of survival after death. There are about five or six other important uh, lines of evidence all pointing in that direction. The people you've... Uh uh, spoken to, did their near-death experiences match like their uh, theological beliefs? Also, were they more common to be uh, positive experiences, or in some case, does this have people had uh, hellish experiences? Uh, there have been negative experiences, but I wouldn't necessarily call them hellish. I know uh, in the Christian literature you will see examples that they use to try to support the Christian theology of heaven and hell. But um, for the most part, the difficulty that what I think of of hellish experiences are it's really people whose lives are sort of out of integrity. And then they go and they have a near death experience and they're exposed to higher consciousness. But when they come back, they're in their old life again. And it creates a conflict for them. Like, how can they live in, in whatever little cheating games that they might be playing uh, now that they've had this experience of higher consciousness. And it often causes a psychological crisis when that occurs. And this kind of is interesting with a parapsychology is that people will dismiss it as like pseudoscience or not a legitimate uh, branch of education. But I mean, theology is an area of study and a lot of people, theology hasn't been proven by science, so why not have parapsychology as a legitimate uh, branch? Uh, well, that's a very interesting question, and I it, it, let me try and break it down a little bit, because parapsychology is a science. It's a recognized science. The Parapsychological Association, of which I am a member, uh, it has about two or three hundred members. I'm just the only one with a doctoral diploma that says parapsychology. But this organization has been in existence uh, since the 1960s. And uh, since 1969, it has been officially affiliated with the American Association for the Advancement of Science. So parapsychologists 
follow the scientific method. They publish their work in uh, reviewed journals. Their research methods are constantly improving over the years. Uh, in fact, generally speaking, uh, the methodological sophistication of parapsychology is greater than in other behavioral sciences. Uh, so it is a science, but there are many areas uh, in academia that are not scientific, theology, philosophy, literature, language, there's plenty of room for non-scientific investigations. And of course, that's very important to me in looking at parapsychology, because a lot of it has to do with getting to know people who are themselves actively engaged in psychic work. And that you could call that a form of anthropological field work for example, as opposed to laboratory science. The first time I've ever th saw Thinking Aloud, you know, I, I my mom remembers it actually, um, probably through the 90s with some earlier episodes. But I kind of found out about Thinking Aloud because I was a huge fan of Colin Wilson. And I knew Colin Wilson was actually on your show, which is funny because he's more of the, I guess, self-made English major who, you know, from his books, The Outsider and The New Existentialism. But um, it's I really like Wilson because it had such a profound way on my thinking. And I think it's funny, too, just recently um, with New Thinking Aloud being on, I you kind of got hooked on this, you know, show just now that it's on YouTube. I found out about uh, Jason Giorgiani and his book uh, Prometheus and Atlas. And um, that I've gotten into, and I find that very fascinating and what that has to say. And it's funny because there is this uh, tremendous influence now with uh, the show Thinking Aloud where it just doesn't cover, where I feel like not only that it's just about parapsychology, but it seems to be this growing whole uh, internet background culture and what it has to say. And there could be many things related to that. I mean, it seems like now that there's a new audience and I feel like is that new audience on the internet composed to what people have, you know, of watching on TV, like there, it seems like you could say much more now on the internet than you could say on the, the TV. Well, I think there's some uh, truth in that. The original Thinking Aloud series was on broadcast television. Uh, we got out on the satellite. We were carried by public television stations across North America. And at one time, over 100 stations were carrying the series. It was seen by millions of people, and it had a, a nice run, 15 years. Um, now on YouTube, um, you've got uh, other restrictions. Uh, well, actually, no restrictions at all, practically. And uh, I, I don't have to be concerned about public television standards. At the same time, I'd love to get back on to broadcast television. And uh, once we build up our audience more on, on YouTube, that uh, is likely to happen. So if, if I may, let me just let your listeners uh, know uh, how to find our video channel. It's New Thinking Aloud, A-L-L-O-W-E-D.com. How did you originally uh, get on to the show on a PBS? Was this a nationwide or just a local station in the Bay Area? Well, you know, uh, as I mentioned, I started out in radio in 1972. I was a um, 
under a, a graduate student in criminology at Berkeley. And I knew I wanted to study human deviance, but I also knew I wanted to study positive forms of deviance rather than negative. So I uh, struggled and struggled and I had a dream. And that dream eventually led me to uh, get involved in listener-sponsored uh, radio on the Pacifica Network on KPFA in Berkeley. Then, many years later, after I got my doctoral degree, uh, I got together with an old friend and we decided to do video. And we started out at the very bottom rung of the ladder on uh, what was public access cable on the local cable channel in Marin County. And we produced 10 interviews and we took them to one of the local PBS stations in the San Francisco Bay Area. It was um, KCSM, College of San Mateo TV station. And uh, the program director there, Wendell Jones, a wonderful man, loved it. And he gave us a primetime spot on his station every week at 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights. And after a year, uh, that station agreed to sponsor us for Satellite Uplink. And at that point, we were never officially part of PBS, but we were available to all the PBS stations and the public stations in Canada as well who had access to the satellite. So that's how it grew. And, and I can tell you, I had psychic help along the way. Uh, it was a very talented psychic named Carol Ann Dreyer, who had her own public access cable program in Los Angeles. And on one occasion, she flew me down to uh, be interviewed by her on her program. And after the program was over, she said to me, now, Jeffrey, I hope you watched what I did very carefully because I want you to go back up to San Francisco where you live and start a public access cable program of your own, just like this. And I predict it'll be successful beyond your wildest dreams. And, and that's actually true. It was. I really like the original introduction, and this may seem kind of silly, but it does remind me of this uh, online genre called a uh, vaporwave. You have like the synthwave music with, I think, like a Roman statue. <laughs> uh, yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. No, I no, it's funny because um, I'm kind of the musicians, and I love synthesizers, and you know, a theme song to any intro to a show that might be familiar, like. Um, you know that, that 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 the synthesizer that comes into uh it's so authentic because in the year uh 2016 it's still being used on new thinking aloud and um it has this kind of uh you know that thinking aloud is on when you hear it and um do you know who uh no this is out of curiosity but do you know who uh made that or composed it or was well that... I, I can tell you this it was composed just for us and uh my partner in the original Thinking Aloud series is Arthur Block. Uh, he lives in Oakland, and he arranged it. Arthur, incidentally, uh, since you have an in interest in the background culture, Arthur is one of America's best-selling humorists. He's the author of a whole series of books on Murphy's Law that were all the best-sellers for decades. Uh, but uh, the... 
composer was a friend of his, and uh, I, I'm afraid I never met the person. Interesting. Because it's funny because it sounds like I can get really detailed on synthesizers and such. Um, I know something about What's modulators. What's ironic and... is the whole genre I was referring to, Vaporwave, it's, it's a very kind of a recent uh, genre that emerged about maybe like a five to ten years ago. Okay, well, this music was composed um, earlier. Back, we started the Thinking Aloud series in 1986. <laughs> yeah, and that's authentic during the time of electronics with drum machines and uh, synthesizers. But um, you know, this is this this is kind of interesting too. Um, you know, I really like Asian studies, and I found always an influence to me was Alan Watts. Did you ever read Alan Watts in your time, or? Well, I met Alan Watts, and I uh, read a lot of his books. They were very influential back in the 1960s when I was an undergraduate um, in college. And later, when I came to California, I had the opportunity to meet him. And interestingly, I've just completed a series of 14 half-hour interviews with Stanley Krippner, who is the Alan Watts professor of psychology at Saybrook University and is sort of carrying on in the tradition of Alan Watts. That's that's really cool because I always think that thinking aloud, uh, you know, my mom is really interested into the whole New Age philosophy, and I do think Alan Watts has a tremendous influence in that impact, especially within the post-hippie culture. And I think, you know, is there some uh, influence of, you know, uh, Watts being that, like, starting up the whole, you know, how much does, does, is there like kind of a Watts into parapsychology ever cited? Or is there any kind of the whole, uh, how much of that kind of uh, Asian studies or religion is compared to parapsychology? Oh, that's a very good question. And of course, there is overlap, because there have been studies about are people who are yoga practitioners and meditators, do they score better in uh, ESP tests? It's always been an interest. And uh, the folklore or literature of uh, uh, all of the Asian traditions, whether it's Buddhism or Hinduism, uh, Tantra, uh, and, and so on. They all uh, talk about the various powers that are acquired, which are of a parapsychological nature. So, uh, of course, we're a tiny field. Uh, if we had uh, more public uh, support for parapsychology, these there would be thousands and thousands of researchers looking into these things. And uh, I suppose uh, there are Actually, if you include not just parapsychology, but transpersonal psychology and some a, a new branch called positive psychology and biofeedback and all of the people who are looking at stress reduction. And uh, uh, there's even a field called yoga psychology now and Buddhist psychology. So actually even though parapsychology itself remains a tiny discipline, uh, it's as if we're um, a beautiful flower in the midst of uh, a very large garden. Mm. I listened to that show you did with uh, Terrence McKenna a while back, and you talk about hallucinogenins yeah. and the influence that they've had on a culture, like especially including ancient cultures like the Vedic traditions. 
yes. have you done a lot of research on uh, hallucinogens and uh, how they relate to spirituality and uh, creativity in the human psyche? Well, I, I, I suppose most of my research has been on myself. I first took LSD back in the 1960s, and uh, I think it's had an important uh, impact in my life and uh, a positive impact. I'm very you know, glad that uh, I used to do that sort of thing. And uh, I endeavored in the uh, course of the work that I do uh, in the spirit of Alan Watts and in the spirit of the Alan Watts professor, Stanley Krippner, to kind of keep up on uh, the uh, scientific developments in this area. And it's, it's very gratifying to me that more and more states are looking at decriminalization of uh, marijuana and hopefully also eventually uh, other psychedelic drugs. Um, yeah, that's 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 it's interesting now in our culture that um, that these these shows like you know TED Talks conferences is about speaking in front of an audience and sharing new ideals and something inspirational to people. Sometimes, however, you know the show can be very actually, um, I guess maybe parapsychological. That um, sometimes there'll be guests on the shows like it could be maybe a conspiracy theory or something. Like I'm thinking of. Uh, I think his name is Barry Schwartz. He was on TED Talks to talk about the Shroud of Turin, which was about the blanket that uh, Jesus was in. That's kind of a conspiracy thing. And I think even Stephen M. Greer, who um, was obsessed with the uh, Atacama skeleton, which is believed to be a little alien. But it shows you on now that TED Talks, it's becoming almost a conspiracy show for some of the uh, upper class people who are interested in talking intellectually. But it seems to over overlap with thinking aloud where thinking aloud is more it's not conspiracies or anything but it's more about parapsychology and i think has thinking aloud influence or is the predecessor to ted talks and getting interested in that or there's some influence that parapsychology is indeed influential it's just that nobody really talks about it or well there's a lot to be said for that i think more and more um you find in in other fields uh, People who don't want to talk explicitly about parapsychology end up working in uh, parallel lines. Now, I'm, I'm not a big uh, conspiracy theorist kind of guy. I like facts rather than speculation. But there is uh, room for speculation in uh, science and in political theory. I just uh, think that as much as possible, the speculation should be grounded on existing facts, on carefully documented facts. And uh, of course, with the whole notion of conspiracy theory, it's just sort of very wide open. And we live in an era today, it seems, especially since the recent election, where uh, people are coming to realize that facts are less important than emotions when it comes to persuading people. So many people uh, now, including our president-elect, are very good at stirring up people's emotions as a way of persuading them. But I, uh, in my work, I think that uh, even though it's a slower, less effective process very often, uh, in the long run, it's better to stick with the facts. Yes. That's 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 interesting because I'm thinking of, you know, it's in, now with the whole internet, people can just post whatever they want online and say whatever they want, and it has indeed created internet cultures. 
In fact, it's funny to think about that shows like InfoWars by Alex Jones, which would be a conspiracy uh, channel. You know, I guess 20 years ago that would be completely unacceptable. But now because of the popularity of the internet. No, it's like kind of almost like quasi mainstream. Yeah, it's like Alex Jones's InfoWars is now almost mainstream and now actual people it's on emotions and on things of actually believing hillary clinton believes to be some reptilian spiritual race or something of that matter i don't know yes yeah david ike would say something but it, it shows you that it's these things are becoming more popular as culture is evolving and there's that how do you make that separation between people of emotion and actual facts and about understanding oneself it is very, very hard to do. Um, even the most brilliant philosophers that I know uh, are at heart. You know, we are we are animals. We are mammals, and mammals, all mammals, are very emotional. We have an amygdala, and the mammalian brain at the very center of our brain is quite instinctive and emotional. So, it's important to be able to calm yourself down and and to meditate or do something to center your mind so that you're not being tugged emotionally. And and then you can begin to see things rationally and look at the facts. But if there's any reason at all to be emotional, it's like, for the most part, the facts go right out the window. People will always make an emotional choice. And um, maybe that's why the human race uh, on this planet is uh, in so much trouble right now. Yeah, we did touch on the like uh, LSD and uh, hallucinogenic uh, drugs. Can you talk about that more in detail? Uh, you experimented with them. What are some of the sort of a uh, uh, spiritual uh, benefits, and what can they do specifically? to get you in touch with deeper with your psyche well let me see if i can explain it to you because i i assume that uh, you guys are much younger than i am and uh, i grew up i was born in 1946 so i had my youth in the 1950s uh, which was a time of elvis presley and the birth of rock and roll but culture at the time was very straight-laced and narrow, sort of like a Norman Rockwell painting. And then in the 60s, all of a sudden, i off to college, and the Vietnam War is starting, and people are protesting the war in Vietnam, which means that, like, here the U.S. government, all these authority figures that you trusted were no longer so trustworthy. They, in fact, people thought the war in Vietnam was unethical and illegal. And uh, then when you get add psychedelics to the mix, it just sort of blows the whole crust off of your cultural conditioning. And that really, uh, I would say, opened me up to beginning to look at other cultures and how they see the world. And in particular, I began to take an interest in what was called spiritual science at the time and occultism and magic and uh, psychedelic drugs lent themselves very well to these interests because you could take 
LSD and begin to see energy patterns all around with your eyes open or your eyes closed. And uh, I began to explore that very carefully. There was on, on one occasion back in the 1960s when I was on LSD, I was with a friend, only I had gone uh, to take a walk and I was a few blocks away and I heard her voice in my mind uh, very clearly as if she was speaking to me. So when I got back, I asked her, well, did, were you trying to communicate to me? And she said, no, no, she wasn't, not in any way at all. That what, whatever I had experienced that seemed so real was totally a product of my own mind. And I, I became aware that, uh, you know, you can't take everything you experience on, on drugs at face value. It's pretty much a window into your own mind, but you get a sense of how vast your own mind is, that there is a, a sense in which your mind reaches out to the very farthest edges of the universe. And, uh, you know, when you experience psychedelic drugs, you learn how to, the, the word that's Timothy Leary popularized is trip. You go on a trip, a trip inside your mind, and that trip can take you absolutely anywhere you would like to go. Does um, you, does that actually influence some of your writing you have actually written in books? Those, I mean, not that you take LSD today, but it seems to me that getting into your inner psyche, you can unrelease creativity you haven't known about yourself before, or that, you know, I don't know what's in my consciousness, and somehow I could unleash that consciousness by going in parts of my brain and uh, putting it on paper like I can write it down. Um, I'm thinking... Um, I was looking at some of your books. I know you have written the PK man and that is kind of a, a well, I've read from an Amazon description. It's kind of the story life. It's story itself about the discipline of parapsychology. Um, could you explain more about what the PK man is about? Yeah. Yes. The PK man is a case study I was involved in from 1976 until 1987 when Ted Owens, who was, called himself the PK man. He died that year. And PK is a parapsychological abbreviation for psychokinesis or mind over matter. Well, this fellow Ted Owens claimed to have more psychokinetic abilities than any human had ever had since the days of Moses. And he went around performing large-scale demonstrations. They included UFO appearances, uh, modifications of hurricanes and, and storms and weather activity, heat spells, cold spells, um, poltergeist activity. And uh, the list gets quite large. And I observed him. Uh, he did demonstrations for me. I collected. I have huge files about uh, including data on over 160 of these demonstrations in which he would purport to do very unusual things like make it snow in summertime and cause heat waves in the winter. Uh, I would say that uh, he was successful roughly two thirds of the time. This has nothing really to do with drugs, right? It has something to do with interlocking or some maybe innate behavior because that makes but, me interested. 
Yeah, let me say, because I know I was talking about drugs earlier, and I've had positive experiences with drugs, but I'm not advocating drugs. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are a hundred ways you can begin to explore the depths of your own mind, and uh, drugs is one of them, but there are many, many others that are also very good. Now, in Ted Owen's case, he uh, was a, a man who enjoyed his whiskey. And uh, very often uh, he would get drunk and perform these feats of psychokinesis. Uh, it's not so different than the Chicago bellhop named Ted Sirios, who was studied extensively and had the ability to produce, um, they called them photographs. He could impress mental images that he was concentrating on onto photographic film like Polaroid cameras in that era, and they would develop the film and there would be a picture and the picture would be, sometimes they would take an image and put it in a, an envelope and seal it and they'd say to Ted, you have to see if you can make an impression of this hidden image on the photographic film. And he was able to do that, but he also uh, liked to get drunk in order to perform. Uh, psychokinesis at that level. So I think there is a sense in which our normal everyday consciousness is typically one in which, um, for most people, we believe that, you know, these phenomena don't exist. And even if they do exist, certainly we can't do it. So sometimes an altered state of consciousness achieved through yoga or meditation or alcohol or drugs or biofeedback. Or I was thinking, um, I think a way for getting open consciousness, I've always been interested in Tantra or some kind of form of sexuality could possibly open the mind. If you are, you're with a lover or a loved one, that's somehow a bond between two people. There's some way of opening of, I had a class on sexuality. And I've been very interested in that. Could you say something about that? Well, there's a very interesting literature on uh, telepathy between family members and telepathy between lovers and husbands and wives. And uh, all of the literature suggests that, uh, you know, a close emotional attachment between two people is conducive to psychic experiences that they share. That's funny because I've always had certain feelings or I've tried to actually write about my own uh, sexuality, but I could never really have, um, you know, I, I, I see where this is coming from, but I don't have enough education on the fact of opening up a consciousness or that there's some telepathical communication. I find it more that sexuality could be open to oneself or finding what, you know, you want out of life or finding more self-confidence or some, uh, uh, you know, uh, understanding who you are, maybe as to not an animal level, but of uh, to expand to consciousness. It's kind of a my own way of um, understanding as a surrogate to drugs. Not that I advocate or do drugs at all, nor do I drink. But I always found that sexuality so natural within animals and as us as you know human beings is almost there is that um, part where it does make us animal sex, but it also could in some way open up consciousness. Uh, absolutely, it can. And there's a huge lore in the field of Tantra that you've already talked about in which not just Tantra is not just sexual. It involves many other disciplines and meditations, but part of it is doing things that might be considered taboo in conventional society. 
Are there certain uh, geographic locations that you've uh, felt a certain uh, kind of a spiritual connection? I know the kind of New Age movement is fascinated with certain locations. And uh, just being uh, in nature itself is an experience where you mm-hmm. you kind of clear out your mind and you connect with nature. Have there been any uh, specific places you've been to where you felt that connection? Well, of course, in nature, and I live in the uh, desert in Nevada and love to go out hiking in the mountains and in the desert. Uh, oh, yeah, I've seen the pictures of you at uh, Red, is it Red Rock uh, State Park. Yeah, uh-huh. Um, but there are certain places in the world that seem to have a heightened sense of spirituality. Uh, one of those is Brazil. Another is India, where uh, it's hard to meet anybody uh, in those cultures where they don't want to start talking to you about your soul and spiritual issues. Or even, um, I know this sounds silly, there's also that whole, that that Burning Man thing that happens in Nevada, where it's this kind of hedonistic, um, I've heard, I heard some conspiracy theories behind it, where it's this kind of occult, cult, but I don't really know much about Burning Man, but do you have something to say on that? Well, I have never been to Burning Man, although I have friends who have gone. It does seem to be kind of uh, a, a new age or, or perhaps postmodern ritual of some sort. They, I was a guest speaker once uh, earlier this year at a festival called Further Future near Las Vegas, which was a, I believe, an offshoot of the Burning Man festival. So uh, I have a sense that these these uh, festivals are largely about electronic dance music and uh, raves and mm-hmm. people going into altered states. There was lots of drug use, frankly, and big areas set up for massage and holistic restaurants. Uh, it was really quite an affair. That's funny. You could even make the case about uh, Las Vegas, uh, even though it's an artificial environment, and it's, it's kind of synonymous with uh, commercialism. It does have an otherworldly feel to it as well. Well, you know, I, I live here now, and I've been here for 15 years. Before I moved here, I never imagined that I'd want to live in Las Vegas because many people think it's all about the strip and the casinos and the gambling. But the truth is Las Vegas is closer to more national parks than any other major American city. So uh, there's another side to it. It's And you uh, can just see like the amount, a lot of the, even from the strip, you can see a lot of mountains. I mean, I've never been, it's near, I know it's near the Grand Canyon and like a Zion and Bryce National Park. I've only been as far as like the Hoover Dam, but there's, there's a lot of amazing places just in short driving distance. Absolutely. Um, that's true. Um, it's interesting because um, I always think, what is the audience behind Thinking Aloud? Or if people have – have you ever had fans that were kind of – it seems to me that, you know, parapsychology as an academic discipline, you can have, you know, academics having an interest in that. But it seems to me that there's other people, you know, from these Burning Man fests that listen to electronic music or are trying to be, uh, you know, finding one's self-consciousness. You know what? What do the, what does this audience range from? It seems to be younger people that, or is there is it a, is it a mixed bag? Well, let me tell you uh, one example. Uh, 
Jason Giorgiani, you mentioned that you enjoyed the recent interviews I've done with him. Mm -hmm. uh, and Jason, I'm very uh, proud of the work he's done. I think you said you have his book, yes. Prometheus and Atlas. It won the uh, 2016 Book of the Year Award from the Parapsychological Association. Uh, Jason grew up as a teenager listening to Thinking Aloud. When we were out on public television, we were carried on one of the New York stations. Uh, so it had a big influence in his life. And now he's, you know, an adult with a doctoral degree of his own and a guest on the program. That's that's amazing. Um, it's it's like that you're it's almost from what I've known, if I was to say anything mainstream about uh, parapsychology, um, I live near Philadelphia. And when I a few years ago, um, I, I my brother would take me to this bookstore. Um, it's it's no longer there. Uh, it was called Germ Books. And it was a bookstore that um, uh, it would carry I would say parapsychological books from science fiction, but I didn't really have a name for you, it. Is it a, a specifically a science fiction bookstore? It tends to call itself a gallery, but from the books I've remembered, it would be also from conspiracy theories to like, you know, it. I remember seeing this one book. I was, um, it was called The Lost Continent of Mew by uh, James Churchwell. And then there's like, then it goes on to aliens. It's like shoot them down. I remember picking up a book by Brian Aldiss by Earthworks, and that's science fiction. But I think I came across um, some kind of parapsychology book about telekinesis or like jazz and physics and um, these out. And basically, the bookstore would be about outlandish things. I'm not so sure, but in best description, I wouldn't say it's actually conspiratorial or maybe just science fiction. But it seemed to me that this. Uh, the, 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 the this bookstore, though it's now out, no longer there, it was selling these kind of quote unquote parapsychological books. If I'm using the definition correctly, but it 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 seems to me that this audience that does flirt with it, yeah, it's indeed young people who've just learned how to read and write, and they want to experience new realities of world which mundane. I mean, not to criticize psychology that, you know, you learn about child psychology. It's it's this is, you know, how the world works. It's almost as if now people want to read books about how there's um, maybe Aurora that, that we have chakras that um, maybe to happiness in life is not about a scientific thing that, you know, you need uh, your you have anxiety. You need to take a chill pill and take some. You know, it seems like people need to get in contact with natural things like maybe going out in the forest or going to, uh, you know, this Burning Man thing or doing these strange uh, rituals. But it seems that now that younger people are being um, educated through these new ways of thinking. And so, uh, you know, what is the stay about that and about how it's do people make up their own ways of finding interests? Well, everything is changing. You know, all this technology uh, wasn't around when I was young. There were no cell phones. Nobody had personal computers. Uh, nobody had telephones in their cars. All we had was the AM radio to listen to. So um, a lot has changed in my lifetime. Uh I know my grandfather grew up in the era of the horse and buggy, and he got to witness a man on the moon. But the change is accelerating, and things are happening faster and faster. So 
um, it gets harder and harder to keep up and to, to know what's really happening in our culture. But I suspect that if we look at some of the larger trends, you're going to see a kind of merger between humans and machines. Uh, how interested are you in uh, transhumanism? Uh, we uh, had, I interviewed uh, Zoltan Itzvan on the show. Mm. I am interested in it, but I think that um, the uh, what I don't like about the transhumanists for the most part is, is that they're not very open to the psychic, the parapsychological, and the spiritual side of things. Now, I did interview one really interesting uh, person, a leader in the field of uh, the singularity and transhumanism. His name was Ben Gertzel. He's written about 10 books in uh, areas of artificial intelligence. And uh, I did two interviews with him that are on the New Thinking Aloud channel about, will it be possible in the future to build robots that are telepathic? And will it be possible in the future to build robots that will actually reincarnate? And uh, he was a delight to talk to. He, he thought we have to be open to these possibilities. One of, it was interesting. One of the questions uh, that I asked Zoltan is if you create this like a perfect uh, human, uh, will a lot, of, a lot of the creativity and uh, spiritual experiences do come from uh, human flaws and human uh, suffering? And his response was that uh, transhumanism will create these like amazing uh, transcendental experiences that are unfathomable. Well, it, it's, it's a lovely promise. Uh, let's hope it's correct. I have a feeling that... Uh, reality will get in the way of uh, everybody's vision of a utopian future. Uh, you've done uh, a lot of art. You've done uh, yin, uh, Yang uh, Rainbow Art on your website. Uh, are you an artist, and what do you see as the sort of connection between uh, art and uh, spirituality? Uh, well, there's a very strong connection, and I am an artist, but I'm the kind of artist that only does a few things in my lifetime. I first created the rainbow yin-yang image back around 1978. In fact, I actually had it uh, created in frosting on my wedding cake when I got married that year. And I've been working on, you know, different versions of rainbow yin-yang ever since. It's my own uh, copyrighted design, in fact. I've got, oh, I don't know, well over... Uh, 700 different uh, versions of it uh, copyrighted at this point. Are you interested um, in a feng shui? Like, feng well, yeah, those is like feng shui art or. Yeah. You, you know, to be honest, uh, it, it just hasn't really got my attention yet. Oh, well, no, I, it just makes me think that if um, there's an influence between yin and yang, there would be some oh, kind yeah. of balance or meditation. In the philosophy of yin and yang, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, but its applications in feng shui and architecture and acupuncture and Chinese herbalism, uh, I I can't say that I've delved into all of those areas. I haven't. Are you, in general, a critical of uh, prescription uh, drug use? Uh, am I critical of prescription drug use? That's a tough question because I'm I kind of 
know both sides of the issue. I'm very well aware that there's huge amounts of abuse from prescription drugs. Um, I had a brother-in-law who uh, ended up uh, basically killing himself with them. On the other hand, I have friends who say they saved their lives, that they were hyperactive children, and if they hadn't been given Ritalin as a child, they never would have been able to get through school. So I know that drugs are like electricity or nuclear energy or parapsychology. They can be put to positive or negative uses, and that there's an enormous amount of misuse of, of drugs in our culture, but I don't think that means that we should uh, stop using them. I think it means that we have to learn how to use them uh, appropriately. Hmm. And then different types of drugs have different effects. I mean, some drugs will make you almost feel like a zombie and uh, kind of uh, shut down your emotions and make physically feel kind of very drugged and groggy. I mean, I've taken uh, benzos, and I've found them to be incredibly helpful, but they can also, they're also addictive. How familiar are you with uh, benzos like uh, clonazepam? Uh, never used them a at all, and I have very little familiarity other than having studied psychoactive drugs uh, academically. Uh, I can tell you this, though, uh, when I was an undergraduate student at the University of Wisconsin, Back in the 60s, if I had an exam coming up, I'd go to the student health clinic and say, I need to stay up all night to study for my exam. And they would give me a dexedrine, which is like a, a milder form of methadrine. And um, I used it all the time as a student, just uh, if I wanted to stay up and cram. And I can say this, at least in my case, it, it it was fine. I never got addicted to it. It never had any negative effects. But um, looking back on it, I think it was kind of risky. Can you talk about your book, uh, The Roots of uh, Consciousness? Yeah. The first edition was published in 1975 while I was still an undergraduate, no, still a graduate student at Berkeley. In fact, I used it as sort of the equivalent of a qualifying exam. It was only after I had showed that book to my professors that I went on to write my dissertation, which was later published as my second book, Psi Development Systems. And then it, when it first came out, it was amazing because here I am a college student and my book is in all the bookstores, right up by the cash register, and hundreds of courses in consciousness studies began to use it as a textbook, and I was still a student. I became like, a, you know, a celebrity uh, as a result of that uh, back in those days. And then in 1987, 12 years after the first edition, I rewrote it, and it was published uh, as a second edition uh, with a lot of changes. About two-thirds of the book was rewritten. Whenever I uh, watch New Thinking Aloud, um, I like to pay attention to the whole set. As you mentioned before, your own art of you kind of have that copyright on the whole rainbow yin and yang. You know, you see it in the introduction with the music. The show begins, and here you are, and then with the guest. And then I noticed in the dark room where it looks like some kind of Charlie Rose shows, 
um, Charlie Rose show. There in the center, there's this kind of weird looking uh, circular statue of some sort. I always look at that. Is do you? It's a, it's the only prop other than the two chairs and you. Do you? you, you um. Do you know, like, why is the there's that statue in the corner? Could you well, I I selected it. Uh, <laughs> it was part of my own personal collection, and it's uh, from Zimbabwe. Mm. It's is created by uh, the uh, natives of Zimbabwe, known as the Shona people. It's carved out of a soft stone called soapstone, and uh, that particular statue. If you look at it closely, you'll see it's a family. It's five people embracing each other. Interesting. Because when I looked at it, I have a very wacky imagination. I thought of something like H.P. Lovecraft or was these tentacles coming out. But now when you say the whole family, yeah, I don't know. But now when you say the family, it's like, okay, maybe there's some form of unity or some kind of state of conscious if there's harmony between it. If that's kind of what I'm... That, well, you know, I think it's great that you were able to see other things in it because it's very abstract and it's if you could see many things in it. I like the sort of Lovecraft sense about it. Yeah. No, that seems kind of more uh, crude because it means Lovecraft. Well, it's an ancient horror and therefore your show is an ancient. No, no, that's that's kind of like offensive on that. But the mentioning of the Zimbabwe makes it a kind of a new respect that you know, between you and the guest, that thing is in the center. I always have the, the conscious when I see the camera on that, I, I, I tend to look at that. And then of course, back, you know, back to the guest. And I find like that has to do like the whole aesthetic of the show has to do with the whole philosophy of uh, parapsychology. Yeah. We use the black background so that there are just no distractions. We're basically doing what used to be thought of as an absolute no-no in television, which is just talking heads. But my goal is to do the very best talking heads. <laughs> yes, I am actually, you know, it's it's fun because um, I, I, I love learning about new people on your show. And that's kind of the one thing why I've, I've became a fan of thinking aloud is that there's a whole now archive of just interesting people as, you know, Colin Wilson sometime on your show is just, I can't even name all the people you've had on the show and actually you have met face to face. And, um, it's like, how do you, how do you even get the people to come to the studio and say, all right, um, you, you're going to come to my show. And we're, it seems like that's because most of the things now are done on, on the internet and just on, it's, it's now kind of a cool unauthentic thing to see a person face to face and with a camera. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I started uh, the new Thinking Aloud series in Las Vegas, I didn't know whether uh, people would be willing to travel to Las Vegas to be interviewed. But I think um, it's it's been great. People have come from all over the world, uh, actually, yeah, to Las Vegas so that I could interview them. And I'm very yeah, grateful and happy for that. Mm. That's a. Uh... No, that's, 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 that's interesting. I mean, it's just, um, just to sit down and then record an hour and two hours of just being all one-on-one -on -one is, um, mm -hmm. no, no, it's, 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 it's interesting on its own. Cause you get to really know about the other person and what they've, um, I mean, previously I was watching about, um, uh, I was learning about the esoteric Christianity with, uh, his name's Stephen, um, 
Richard Smoley. Richard Smoley. Okay, I was just actually watching that the other day, and I found mm-hmm. a lot of um, interesting of uh, wisdom to that. I don't know. I just find that a subject like that, you know, makes me think of a different perspective on um, a current subject that wasn't really of them. Um, I find that actually a current theme in um, the the work on um, thinking aloud, where it's kind of a different way of, I guess thinking aloud <laughs> if that's um yeah. for a lack well, of- I-, I noticed that uh you answer a lot of uh your youtube uh, commentators a lot like most major uh, youtube personalities uh in general they uh, don't do that oh well i try to be helpful um you know i can't answer everybody uh and many comments don't require or don't deserve an answer but uh, if I find that a person is really sincere and uh, poses a question and I'm able to answer it and I have the time, I'll do it. Some people I've, I've seen on the YouTube comments will actually disagree or they'll get angry, actually, of the guests you have on. I mean, mm-hmm. not that you would get angry at them, but it just seems that we are now in a Internet uh, comment driven, uh, you know, culture where it's like, people can go on for like 80 comments going back and forth to have a debate and nobody's recording it unless you put a copy and paste it in a notepad and it seems that yeah. people are get it like they're actually talking to a person. It's very interesting. This whole world of comments and tweets, uh, it's, it's like uh, a new language, a new form of communication and it's becoming quite global as well. I feel like that eventually. And as you kind of said, is like you make an effort to have like your guest in studio. Is I mean, right now we're doing it an audio interview. We're just so it's like the equivalent of a talking on the phone. Yeah. Is there something a different connection that you have with your guest if you're talking to them like face to face? And is it mandatory that the uh, that a guest appear in appear in studio as opposed to uh, doing it over Skype? Right. Yeah. I don't do interviews over Skype for new thinking aloud. I, I did a few uh, in a different context and um, I liked it. I thought it was OK. But uh, what I'm really trying to do is leave a legacy uh, that will be around in 50 or 100 or 200 or 500 years from now. And so I'm trying to do uh, the most professional, highly polished uh, accurate, factually based, uh, credible uh, interviews I can with the most qualified guests I can find. We are getting uh, close to the end of the show, but I would like to ask you is uh, where do you see the direction of your work going in the future? Uh, what really is exciting me now is uh, what I call career retrospective interviews. Uh, for example, I had Stanley Krippner, whom I mentioned earlier, the Alan Watts professor of psychology at Saybrook University, and he came in and we did 14 half-hour interviews together covering all the major books he had written and uh, areas of research. So it was like looking back at his uh, lifetime work. He's 85 and very cogent and active, but he's not going to be around forever. And I've uh, been fortunate that other senior people in the field of parapsychology 
technology are willing to sit down with me and have lengthy, detailed conversations about their life's work and uh, what importance they see in it and where they'd like to see it go. And uh, Pilleter, do you want to ask uh, one more question? I just want to say that um, I really like Thinking Aloud and where it's going. And I hope new Thinking Aloud can gain a new audience on YouTube and actually find a new cultural niche. I really believe in Thinking Aloud uh, could go somewhere. And it now has this tradition of that whole resume being on the past of PBS. And it's something I think anybody who's interested in in parapsychology or just new ways of thinking or people they've never heard about or just these um, uh, new academics that need light. I think New Thinking Aloud covers these things. And it's great that it's also one-on-one interviews. And especially I like to listen audio before I go to uh, bed at night. It's something great to listen to. And there's a lot of great information information that can be learned from Thinking Aloud. I just... I love the show, and I think Mishlove is doing fantastic work, and it's something I'm looking towards every other day in the the future when I see a new uh, video uploaded onto YouTube. Hey, I'm so grateful to hear you say that. It's so heartwarming to me. I love it that you love what I'm doing, and uh, I want to commend you on this podcast. It's a a foot in the door of uh, what could be an amazing career for you guys. Yes. And if I can uh, uh, work with you again in the future, I'll be very happy to do it because you're helping to open my eyes. It's been an excellent show. Uh, Jeffrey Mishlev, it's, thanks for being on. My pleasure. And also, uh, thank you, uh, Pillator. It's good to be on. Th- um, yeah, it's good to be on. And uh, yes, uh, nice to talk to you, Mishlev. Okay. Take care.